So thank you, Lord, as we start this um, next session, that you would, um, I would ask that you would open our minds, our ears, our understanding to hear clearly and to, to know what you're telling us. Um, Lord, we need to be um, living in the freedom that you have provided for us and help us to do that, Lord, for that's what we want. So I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for the way we've been able to praise you and lift up our voices to you. And I ask now that you would... Um, raise your voice to us and that we would hear you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, uh, I don't think we've mentioned it, but we've got a couple of half-day things. I think, or maybe I did say something. On the 7th of March, there will be um, cards going out. The 7th of March from 1.30 till 4 or 2 till 4.30, something like that. Um, in, in Siren Sister, in our centre, we're going to do a session or a half a day on um, prayer as um, a weapon. Um, yeah, so if you'd like to come to that, it's no charge. Bring anybody you want to. Um, just come and let's see what God says about praying as a spiritual weapon. Uh, and I think it's necessary because we are in a war. And, uh, and prayer is one of the two weapons God has given us, the word of God and prayer. And um, it'd be good to, to see what he says about it and how to use them. So uh, let's just go now to Hebrews chapter 2, where we left off earlier. Hebrews chapter 2. Um, because of the momentousness of everything he's just written, which is actually only, we've only read a couple of pages and... He's, he's almost taken aback by what he's writing, I think. And he, he, he says in, um, I'm going to read from verse 14 of chapter 2 again to chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took, sorry, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, because of everything I've just said, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our confession is our testimony. It's our sharing of faith. It's our statement of faith in, in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, Matthew 16, and uh, his disciples say, some say this, some say that, um, you know, some say you're a rabbi, some say this, and, and Jesus turns to Peter and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was for man did not reveal this to you, but this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. Every single one of us here who has believed in Jesus has had that revelation from God. 
You had the truth of Jesus revealed to you by God the Father, and that's why you put your trust in him. If, Jesus, if God doesn't reveal the truth to us, none of us would ever know it. God must reveal truth to us. And so as we are going through the scriptures, the whole gospel is in a way, uh, sorry, the whole Bible in, is in a way the gospel. It's the truth about Jesus. And Jesus is on every page. That's what David was saying to us as he was looking at Leviticus and, and the names and, um, and of Aaron and his father and his mother and, and then Matthew 17 where there's a Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is on every page. Something about him is talked about on every page because God has made Jesus the center of everything. And so as, as we're reading this, God is revealing things to us. That's what you prayed, Maureen, that God revealed, had revealed things to us that we hadn't seen before. We've read things, but we haven't seen this revelation of glory, and that's what God is doing. And the writer here says, Therefore, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The enormity of this is amazing. He's calling these believers who are in desperate trouble of falling away from the faith He's calling them holy brethren. These are people who are tempted to give up meeting together, who are suffering, who are being tossed about by the storms of life. And he's still calling them holy brothers and sisters. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, you and I are holy to the Lord. You have been separated by God for God. And you are now holy in Christ. And, and that holiness comes not from yourself. It comes from God's handling you. Anything God touched in the Old Testament immediately became holy. When he's in the burning bush, you remember, and Moses comes and, and he says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. Why? Because God was there. Wherever God is, is holy. And if he is in you, you are holy. Yes, there's a work going on in you. Yes, you're being sanctified. You're being made like Christ. You're being made holy. But in one sense of the word, you are already holy and always will be. That's how come you can be absolutely positive that Jesus is your high priest forever, that he will never cease to be your high priest, that the propitiation he made, the sacrifice he made, will forever be enough to take you home. I mean, the whole thing is incredible. And so um, what, we're, what we're asked to do is go over in our mind all that this means. Just go over it. Consider Jesus. Keep on going over. What does this mean? What does this mean for you? You know, it means that you are holy in the Lord. That you can stand in his presence, blameless with great joy that you can and will be used by a holy God for a holy purpose. You have a holy, heavenly calling. It is a calling on your life, and it is a calling by the God who created all things. Can you imagine anything more important? You have been called by the creator of the universe to do a work that only you can do. I mean, it's just beyond wonderful. And in our humanness, and especially in our Britishness, we want to do that. No, not me, you know, not me. That's what we do. In our humanness, we do that. 
yeah, that might be for you, but it's not for me. And I'm sure my work is just going to be cleaning the loos. A number of people I talk to about that, you know, that we're going to be doing something that's not, not so important in the world's eyes because we've designated the jobs that are important. But your calling and my calling are equal in the sight of the Lord. And whatever he's going to ask you to do is exactly what he's going to ask me to do. And what you do and what I do is testify to the reality of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he has brought you into. That's your work. That's your work. That's what you're to do. And you can do it in whichever way you like. But that is the work that God created in advance for you to do. And you need to be finding, we need to be finding a body, an, a body of believers that we can fit into to do the work together that God created for us to do. And it may not be the church that you go to every Sunday. I mean, I don't know. There are some wonderful congregations out there. And if you happen to be in one, that's wonderful. That's great. But it may not be that one. You may not be in a wonderful congregation. So you have to find yourself another fellowship through which to do the work of God with others. And, um, and understanding this, and uh, when you make your confession, when you make your spoken testimony, is just huge. Nobody wants to hear about your God who cannot set you free. Who wants to know a God who has not succeeded in setting you free? Because you're just offering up on a plate the same old, same old, same old stuff that the whole world has. That's why our testimony and the sharing of it is so important. That we have to be sharing from a heart that understands at least what freedom is. That though we may falter, though we sometimes do pick up those chains, we know what it means to be free. And we want to live in that freedom. Um, when you go through the scriptures... Um, well, sorry, when you go through Hebrews and you, you go on in Hebrews, chapter 3 and chapter 4 are going to talk about something that God brings you into after you have been set free. And he calls it the rest of God, R-E-S-T. It is the rest of God. And it's, it's sometimes a bit complicated when you read chapter 3 and chapter 4 because there's different types of rests being talked about. But the rest that we've, uh, we're going to look at is the one that you and I have been brought into. And what he'll do is use the Old Testament example of the Israelites coming out of Egypt coming through the blood of the Passover lamb, being justified, set free, because they have come out of slavery in Egypt and they are on their way to the promised land. It is a perfect picture of salvation. And they get out of uh, Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb and they come and they're going through the wilderness and they get to the edge of the promised land and it doesn't take them very long, less than a month. They get to the end of the promise, the edge of the promised land and um, they send in 12 spies. Moses sends in 12 men to have a look and see what it's like. And 10 of them come back and say, it's too scary for us. We shouldn't go in. And only two say, let's go in. And because they didn't go in, they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. It is the perfect picture of Christians who are saved, but who wander around in a wilderness of I don't, of lack of peace and lack of joy and lack of 
satisfaction and fulfillment in Christ. And the reason they wandered around in the wilderness was because they did not believe. They would not believe. God had said, this is the promised land. He said, when you get in there and you, and you start, building, uh, start living in houses you didn't build and reaping crops you didn't sow, don't, don't forget me. This is a land of plenty. They're going to be taken into a wonderful land of blessing. But they go in and all they can see are the giants. All they can see are the difficulties. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of Christians live like that. They come into the promised land, the rest of God, the peace and the joy and the understanding that it's not about me, it's all about him and that where I am totally insufficient, he is totally sufficient. It, it, it's this, and, and I get to the edge, they get to the edge of that place and they just know, no, well, but you don't know about my love, you don't know about this, you don't know about that, you don't know the difficulties I've got, you don't know how hard it is. And they take one step in and then they're one step back again and they're constantly backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, in and out of the rest of God. That's what I said a minute ago. Who wants to know that God? If you're witnessing to that God, who wants to know him? You're telling me about a God who, can, who saved me and freed me and is going to take me into this spiritual promised land and you're not even in it yourself? I, I, I don't want to know about that God. Are you living in the rest of God? Because it is simply a matter of belief. Do not think that there is any other reason why you're not living there except that you will not believe. That's the truth. It says here in um, Hebrews, he gives us the classic um, uh, uh, scripture in uh, chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, these Israelites who didn't go in, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They heard the word, they knew that it was the word of God, but they did not or would not believe it. They would not believe it. Instead, they wandered around in the wilderness, as I say, until eventually they died in the wilderness. This is not a matter of whether they went to heaven or not. This has got nothing to do with it. If you have come through the Passover blood of the Lamb, if the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all sin, you are going to heaven. This is not about your eventual destination. This is about where you live on the way. This is about your, the power in your witness, the power in your life. This is about the, the way that you will say to the Lord, everything I have is yours. All that I have is yours. Use it for your glory. It's, it's about the way that you actually lay hold of that. Remember Paul in Philippians 3? He says, not that I've already attained this, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. Can you see that? He's pressing on to get something that Christ has already done for him. 
It's not that it's not been done. It's not that he's got to keep pressing on so that it will be done. It's that it's already done. I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. That's the rest of God. That's the rest of God. It's the peace that passes all understanding. It's the joy unspeakable, Peter will say, and full of glory. It's that life that we are called to. But when those Israelites got to the edge of the promised land, they couldn't believe it because what they saw were the difficulties. And that's what you and I attempted always to see. And what happens? It will keep us out of his rest. It will keep us shackled to our past. You will be tied up to your past instead of walking not into the future, but into the glorious present. That's the thing. Do you believe that now, here, you can have the joy and the blessing and the peace of God? Do you believe that spiritually you can be a giant, in a good way, (laughs) you can be a giant for God? The only way to do it is to do what this writer keeps on saying. Consider Jesus. Just keep thinking about Jesus. As far as you're able to train your mind, think about Jesus. And don't just think about some, you know, I don't know, some kind of fairy tale picture of Jesus. Think about him as he is, as the Savior who hung on the tree, as the high priest who offered himself, as the intercessor for you, as, you, as your advocate, who every time you mess up and every time you fail, is there with the Father saying, this is who they are, this is who she is, this is who he is, they're mine, they're mine, they belong to me. Help them, Lord, to stand up and not fall down again. Jesus doesn't have to pray for you to be accepted by God. You're already accepted in him. There's nothing you could do that he doesn't know about. Your sins were forgiven past, present, and future. Stuff you haven't even thought of yet was forgiven in Christ. There's no way that God will ever see anything that you do and say, well, that's just way too much, a step too far. But we have to live in the truth of that. You have to live unafraid. Unafraid. Because if you don't, you're just going to be dragging your feet around until the day you die physically and go to be with the Lord. What did they fail to trust, these Hebrews? They failed to trust the good news that was preached to them. What was the good news? The word of God. They failed to trust the promises of God in the wilderness that he gave them, that he would care for them, that he really would give them victory over their enemies. They murmured and they complained and they just wanted to go back. I mean, how many Christians do you know that just don't stop complaining, criticizing? You know, there's something wrong with this and there's something wrong with that and, you know, we can't listen to that and we can't listen to that. And all of us have been there. We've all been in that place because we get a little bit of knowledge and, oh my goodness, we think we know everything. And of course, what I know is so much more right than what you know, so I've got to share that with you, and I can't listen to your nonsense. This is, uh, you know, who is Jesus? How, how did John describe Jesus? 
Remember in John chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. What was he like? Full of grace and truth. You want to be like Jesus? That's how you're going to be. Full of grace and truth. You are going to be so gracious with other people and yourself. And you are going to be truthful in that grace. Truthful with yourself and with other people. They failed to trust the promises of God. And the writer says that this is the same danger that those early Hebrew believers were facing and that's what we're facing today. Will you trust the promises of God on your life, for your life? You know, and this is like everybody knows we should all nod now. Yes, we'll, we'll trust the promises of God. But there are so many that we don't trust. Because the first thing is true that we talked about this morning. Because we have an enemy who is always trying to pull us away from full trust and belief in God. What's the situation in your family? Is it hideous? Will you believe that God is in the business of reconciling families? And that he will bring about only good through your problem. Do you really honestly believe? It may not look like the good you think it should be, but it will be better. Do you really honestly believe that in your, though your marriage is a wreck, God will work in that to bring you through to freedom? Not necessarily to make your marriage perfect, but to bring you through to a place of rest in that same situation. When the diagnosis is terrible for someone you love and, and you don't know where to turn and it just fills you with anxiety and fear, will you really trust that God is, loves that person more than you love them? That he is calling to them more than you would ever call to them. That he wants them more than you want them. And that he has promised that there will be nothing left unsaid. That they will not get to face him without having heard the truth and making a choice. Do you really think that God's going to leave your unsaved husband or your unsaved child or mother or whatever do you really think he's going to well sorry you you didn't do your job so so he's not in if i thought that my husband's salvation depended on me i'd given up already his salvation does not depend on me his salvation depends on his choice of god and god will give him every opportunity to choose him and my only Prayer is, Lord, make me whatever I'm supposed to be to witness to who you are. This chapter 4 is quite interesting because it's here that the, 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 the talk about the living word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword is. And, and uh, so there's a, a link between verse 2 
They didn't enter because they didn't believe what they heard. Verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So their unbelief in in verse 2 is called disobedience in verse 11. And what the writer is saying is, you know, be diligent. Entering the rest of God, it doesn't just happen. You just don't get dropped in by parachute. You have to go in yourself. You have to take the steps into the rest of God. And you have to trust all the time that he's there with you, enabling you to take them. And it takes effort because everything you see with your human eyes will be telling you that you can't get in there. So look at what he says. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So... um, Let's make the connection, really, between um, uh, verse 11 and then the others. Verse 11 says, basically, make sure you know and trust the word of God. Because the people didn't enter the rest of God because they didn't trust it. They heard the word, but they didn't trust it. So it's not enough to know the word or hear the word. You have to actually, actually trust it, believe it. And then verse 12 says, one reason to do this is because the word, the good news, referred to in in verse 2, which they didn't, is living and active. They didn't believe it, but it's a living and active word. So one reason to do it is to be diligent to do it, is to make sure you hear it and you trust it. And here's the reasoning. We must hear and trust the word. And how do we do it? How do we do it? You have to choose to do it. But how do you trust it? How do you trust the word of God? You know, we, you obey it. You step out in obedience. Okay, right. Okay, so the first thing is then, I, what I want to say to you is you trust the word of God. You want to be diligent to get into the, um, to the rest of God. So, uh, okay, Hebrews 2, verse, verse 1. Pay, mo- pay much closer attention to what you've heard. I mean, how close is your attention to the Word of God? Really? I'm not talking about what he tells you from the Word of God, which is wonderful and should be written down in a journal. I'm talking about your attention to the actual Word of God. So you're reading a word like advocate. Okay, I don't, I'm not quite sure I understand what advocate means. So I might buy myself a Greek dictionary and, and, or I might go online and figure out what that means. What does that mean, advocate? Not because I want to know the information in my head, but because I want to know something more about Jesus. He's my advocate. What does that mean? And then when I find out what that means and I put that into that sentence, I then can start to say, okay, he is actually actively speaking for me in the presence of God. That means that yesterday, when all I could do was moan and grumble at my unsaved husband, he was right there in the presence of God saying, 
she knows not what she does, <laughs> you know, or something like. He was there speaking for me when I was in such a bad place that I needed someone to speak for me. That's not true, actually. I wasn't in a bad place yesterday, so, but you know what I mean. So, so think about that. What does it mean that he's my advocate? What does it mean that he is the high priest of my confession? What does that actually mean? What do the words mean? Because this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this, this, if, if every word in this book is by God, who wouldn't want to dig down to the bottom of it? Who wouldn't want to know? What does that mean? And did it mean then what it means now? And when, and when it was written, what, is he, what was he actually trying to say? And when you read in Isaiah 43, is it? When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, it will not burn you. Don't you want to say, I don't want to just rip that verse out of context and say, okay, that's for me. Because that will never hold me up when I need to be held up. When I'm walking through a raging storm in my life, if I haven't understood what that meant and who it was spoken to and when and how, that won't hold me. I have to be diligent Pay close attention. I have to consider Jesus, the apostle of my confession. And I have to figure out, am I actually, am I actually making that confession? Am I standing up in any situation and saying, I am a follower of Jesus Christ? I know to you that looks weird. I've got tons of friends to whom that looks totally weird. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And though I might have totally disagreed with everything he said before I became to know him, I now totally agree with everything he says. I mean, how many times are you doing that? We were having a conversation over there about writing to members of parliament. You know, you don't like the stuff that's on the BBC. Who does? You know, you don't like it's on there. Write to the BBC. You know, and I have to say, I don't do that. I mean, I'll complain about it, but I don't do it. I need to stand up and be counted. I need to put my name on an email or a letter and say, this is not right. And it's not right because of this, this, and this. And I need to be unafraid to say, the reason I think this is because I follow the great God of the universe. I follow the creator and sustainer of all things. He is my savior, my redeemer, my Lord, my friend. I don't want his name rubbished on every TV program that is on. I don't want to hear his name as a swear word. And I have to be prepared to say that. These are the days we're coming into, or in, we're in. So consider Jesus, the apostle of my confession. Is he my confession? Every day. Take care, Hebrews 3 verse 12, take care lest there should be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart. What's an evil unbelieving heart in a Christian? It's a heart that refuses to believe certain words or certain truths. Who is saying no to those things? I know I shouldn't be bitter. I know I should forgive that person, but you don't know what they've done to me. And if you knew, you wouldn't ask me to forgive. And what's Jesus' answer? 
70 times 7, 490 times a week probably, forgive that person. Honestly, who wants to do that? I don't want to do that. I don't want to forgive someone, especially if they don't ask for forgiveness. That's the last thing I want to do. If they don't even know that they need forgiveness, even worse. But that doesn't matter. That's the command of Jesus. Forgive. Okay, so what's in your heart? How many slights? How many offenses? How many differing opinions? Have you forgiven everybody? Will you? That's what it means. It doesn't mean, yeah, it's a wonderful book and it makes me feel really good and I especially love Psalm 23 and Psalm 139. I mean, they are just lovely, aren't they? He knows every hair on my head and every day in my life before one of them comes to be and he leads me beside still waters. That's the God I want. I don't want the God who says, don't hold bitterness in your heart, don't slander anyone, don't gossip, don't lie. I don't want that God all the time because I'm human and I'm having to fight my flesh. I don't want the God who says, that's enough of your cynicism, man. You need to look beyond what you see with your human eyes and see everyone as a new creation in Christ Jesus. You need to value other people above yourself. I mean, really, seriously? You have to value every other person above yourself? Who does that? But that's what we're called to. And every time we say no, or every time we don't do it, that's unbelief. It's unbelief. Because for some reason you do not believe that that is the very best thing for you to do. Which means you have believed a lie that holding on to this or holding on to that or not doing this, or doing this other thing, is better for you than doing what God says. What's the aim of this letter? The whole letter? Ah. Not the only one in the world. The the woman of Amen. She just said nothing else. She was in a Catholic village. What sort of religion are you now? (laughs) And I said, well, follow, follower of Jesus Christ. She said, is that some American place? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of my mum. When I first believed, when I first walked up to the, in the church in Japan, I called home. I called my friend who'd been praying for me. I hadn't realised, but praying for me for years. Told her, you'll never guess what I've done. And um, she couldn't guess. Um, and then I called my mum and dad. And my mum picked up the phone and I said, you never guess what's happened. I've just become a Christian. I've walked up in the church and I've given my life to Jesus. And she said, whatever you do, don't give them any money. (laughs) (laughs) My mum is the kindest, sweetest woman, but don't give them any money. Because she thought it was some American cult. 
that I'd got involved in. So funny, isn't it? And born again, my goodness, she could never deal with born again. It was like a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> See how you've changed the tone, Alan. So, how are we going to enter the rest of God? Only by hearing and trusting the word of God. And we have to keep on hearing, keep on reading, keep on studying, keep on looking, keep on doing it, because we have to be diligent to enter this rest. And it's going to take effort. And, uh, and so the thing is, um, it's important actually to know then that the word of God is the means by which we are going to enter the rest. Because what he says here is, it's piercing through um, bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and it will show you the stuff that you can't see in your, in your heart, mind, will, whatever. He, it will show you the things you can't see. And so when it penetrates into the deepest part of you, it's going to say, and, you know, this is what we found. What are we going to do about that? You know, that's what, that's what the point of, of this, this verse is. It's a good thing that the word of God penetrates through because it's going to winkle out all those deceptions, as I said earlier. And that's what I'm desperate for. Because every week of our lives, we will face difficult situations. We will face difficult people. We will face all sorts of trouble and storms. And we will always be tempted to take the easy path. We will be tempted to water down, to kind of make it palatable for people, to not say... I'm a Christian and here I stand. We'll be tempted to go for the easy life. And every week, we'll remember an old hurt, a bitterness, something that someone is currently talking about you about, someone whom you like, so it's going to hurt. And all of those times, you're going to be tempted not to focus on Jesus, not to put the word of God into your heart. And in those moments, the most important thing will be, am I trusting God or am I, without really realizing it, beginning to compromise, beginning to put my trust in kind of expediency or half-truths? And the thing is, when we're asking those questions, we're understanding two things. A, I'm easily deceived. And B, I am not infallible. I know that comes as a shock. But I am not and neither are you. We are none of us infallible. We make mistakes all the time. We make errors of judgment all the time. That's why we need God. There's a danger of unbelief that we're going to face every day. And look at what he says um, uh, in, in, sorry, back was in, in chapter three, verse 13. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
What must I do? I must focus on Jesus. I must put his word in. I must believe his word. And I must get together with other people who want to do the same thing. And the thing is, the word of God will do what it says it will do. And I wrote some things down here because these are the lies that we believe, some of them. And sin whispers, Satan whispers these into our ears. Your only hope of future happiness is to look out for number one. That's the only way you're going to be happy, especially as you get older. You better put aside some money and look after yourself. You better be careful. Not, don't be too rash. Don't, don't. I know you think you've heard a call from God, but you know, really, you've got to be careful now. Number two, you're not going to be accepted in that group if you don't just go along with the gossip a little bit. I mean, you really don't want to be the one who says, no, I don't do that, because that's you on the outside. And I need a group. I mean, come on, I need a group, right? I need a place that I can go and have coffee with my friends, and we can chat of this and that. I need to have friends. And that whisper will be so... Don't be so fundamental. Not right up front. Don't tell them what you do. It's the lie. You won't be noticed if you don't look like everybody else. So if you don't wear the same sort of clothes and you don't, you know, it's almost like a uniform. To be in certain groups, you've got to have a certain uniform. You've got to be people like us, PLUs. You've all got to look the same and talk the same. And then you'll be in. We have whole churches like that around the country. You go into them and everybody looks the same. It says, for example, that you're going to lose the one person who cares about you if you don't sleep with them before you're married. If you hold on to sexual purity, he's off. She's off. You don't really want to give up that guy because he's not a believer. I mean, this is your only chance, your last chance of happiness. What's the point in hanging on for a believer? I mean, there's so few and far between strong Christian men, you might as well just give up now. Just get any old man and turn him into a Christian. These, I mean... You know, we're laughing, but these are the lies people believe time and time and time again. We have churches full of young people who believe that lie. Don't talk about anything dishonest in work because you're going to lose your job. And if you lose your job, what are you going to do? So don't bring those things to anyone's attention. You know, definitely you know, don't tell on anybody else. You'll never amount to anything. You'll never amount to anything. You're a failure and you always will be. Nobody loved you when you were a child. And they're not going to love you now. Only a fool, this is the final one, only a fool would go on looking weak instead of getting some sort of revenge. 
Only a fool would not hit back when someone's hurt you. Only a fool would forgive. I mean, these are weird, I suppose, in some ways, but they're just typical of the lies we believe. And you'd think you don't believe anything like that. And people laugh and you think, oops, I think I have. And they've all laughed at that. So, you know, we all of us, we all of us are open to that sort of deception. And what's our only hope? Jesus. And the thing is, our only hope is his word, this living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword word, because some of these deceptions are so deep, they need to be really dug out. They need to be dug out. I know people, all of these examples, I know people who have believed or have come to their senses about the lie they had believed. There's not one there really that I haven't, I haven't met someone. Be diligent to enter God's rest by fighting off unbelief. And then look at what he's going to say just at the end of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. When you can't work out what's deception and what's truth, what are you going to do? Draw near to the throne of grace. When you're not sure whether this is right or wrong or you're, or, or you're in danger of going the wrong way, or what are you going to do? Draw near to the throne of grace. When you can't figure things out, Jesus can. Why? Because he's been exactly where you are. There is no temptation that he has not had the victory over. And when you're tempted, you know, we talked about um, the fear of death is gone and then some people have fear of dying. Christians have fear of dying. Way back in chapter 2 when it talked about that and it said that he overcame, the temptation when you're dying or when you're thinking about dying is and it's painful, is, where is God? Why hasn't he got me out of this? Why hasn't he fixed this? The temptation is to turn away from God because he hasn't done what you think he might have done. You know, there are people in this room that they know that God could have put his hand into their situation and changed it, but he didn't. There's the most subtle of all deceptions and temptations. Why? Why didn't he do that? What was it about me that I did wrong that he didn't fix my situation? Do you think Jesus, when he was dying on the cross, wasn't tempted to turn away from God? Of course he was. Do you think he wasn't tempted to say, really, did it have to be this way? Of course. That's why he can help you when you are in that place. Because we have a great high priest who's been where we've been.
and who has had the victory.